The New Testament reading is from James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The word of the Lord. One ancient hope, it's good to be with you this morning. I do see a number of of new faces, and I did want to say we also are fairly new. We've only been here for a few months, so if you are new, take heart that um, you're only a little newer than me, and I do hope that we we get a chance to connect after the, the service. And again, it is the word of God that God uses to create, to craft his church, to call us, and to collect us together. So before we look at this passage, let us come together in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you use it in our lives. First and foremost, to turn us to you in love as we we receive the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, and how that pushes us out not only in love for you, but overflows in the love of our neighbor. I pray, Father, that as we look at this text, you would help us to apply these two great commandments, love of God and love of neighbor, to our heads, to our hands, to our hearts. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, in this passage, James makes us take a hard look at the way that we use our money. He asks us to consider our practices of saving and of spending. He wants us to ask, are we making economic decisions that demonstrate the love of God and neighbor, or are we doing so solely for the love of self? When we venture into the area of finances, we encounter a range of dangerous temptations. However, James sets a clear course for using money with proper wisdom and proper love. And as we will see, this course will take us directly to the gospel. And towards that end, I want to look at this passage under three headings. I want to look at saving, spending, and selling. So let's look first at saving and look with me at James 5, 1 through 3. James writes the following. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, we've been slowly working through the book of, of James, and it's probably not too much of a long shot to say... This is perhaps the harshest passage that we find 
in all of James. And that's saying a lot because James is not an author to pull his punches. And what he's warning us against here is a kind of approach to finances where we, where we take them and we simply store them away, where they're not used, where they're kept away and they're accumulated, and we sit back and we take comfort in all that we have saved up. And James tells us something about resources treated in this way. He tells us that they become rotted, moth-eaten, and corroded. James here is using images of disuse, images of growing old, images of being locked away. And we know this from personal experience. Think about what happens to things that we keep in the back of closets, in the darkest corners of our basements, in those parts of our garages, our attics that we just can't get to. Those things that just get out of the regular rhythm of life. What's the result? Well, these things begin to smell, to rot, to mold, to unravel, to cease to work, to come to the point where they're beyond repair. When something is not used, it becomes useless. Closets are good things. It would be foolish, for example, to throw away our winter coat in the summer just because we don't need it right now. In a few months, you are going to need that winter coat when winter hits. But at the same time, there is such a thing as having too many winter coats, more winter coats than you can possibly wear. And when those coats are unworn, when they pass into disuse, we know this. They corrode, they rot, they mold, they become moth-eaten. In a similar way, it's wise, it's prudent to save, to have finances available for unexpected circumstances, to have finances available for retirement. It's like keeping your winter coat in the closet in the summer. But this can also be a dangerous temptation. We can find ourselves in the financial equivalent of having too many coats, more coats than anyone can wear, and they begin to smell, to rot, to mold. And James is warning us that the very same thing can happen with our finances. And really, what James is taking us to is the perpetual struggle of the Christian life. Throughout the letter, James has appealed to what he calls passions. And if you remember, these are the disordered desires, the disordered loves that cause us to love the good gifts of creation more than the creator. We love the gift, and we go to ignore the gift giver. And so we turn our back on the greatest of all goods, which is God himself. So James presents us with a very important question. How is it that we keep finances and savings to be good things, but not ultimate things? How can we keep them in the proper place in our heart? Well, think about the reasons we love the things that we do. For example, we seek out friendship and family because we love the good gift of mutual affection and mutual fellowship that happens within friendships, that happens within family. Well, in the same way, we seek out finances because we seek the good gifts of security and stability. Yet we have to remember that these good things are mere reflections of a deeper fellowship and affection, a deeper security and stability. They're reflections and they point back to something else, namely to God himself. 
For in Christ, we find ourselves lavished with a love and an affection wherein we become a beloved child of God. When we are in Christ, we share and receive the very love of the Father for the Son. And this is a love that will never, ever let us down. Likewise, in Christ, we rest in the good and gracious and sovereign will of God. And so we have to learn to trust God as our ultimate source of stability and security. But again, if we think about our last sermon from James, this does not mean that our life will be free of of difficult or even tragic circumstances. But it does mean that God promises us his own goodness throughout. Um, From the last uh, sermon on James, we we, we talked about the Chronicles of, of Narnia. Um, And we transpose the phrase, of course Christ is not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And we know that God will work all things to our good. Paul tells us as much as Romans 8. In Romans 8, that God works all things for our good. And that good is conformity to the image of Christ. So no matter what happens, we can rest knowing that we are upheld in God's hands. But these are hands that not only uphold us, these are also hands that mold us. And they mold us into what God intends us to be. And that molding happens through each and every circumstance that God puts in our life. And this does not mean that we cease, that we stop lamenting the woes of the world or the woes in our own life, but it does mean that God never wastes them. In her book, uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Annie Dillard gives us uh, a very thoughtful definition of cruelty. She defines cruelty as follows, quote, a waste of pain. Cruelty is a waste of pain. But James tells us that God is not cruel, that God wastes no pain, that through everything that happens to us, he forms us into what exactly he intends us to be. Recall how James begins his letter. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There is great stability and there is great security here. But the temptation is to seek in finances the security and the stability that only God himself can provide. One that will protect us from any circumstance that happens. The temptation is to take more comfort in your bank account than in the good and gracious and sovereign will of God. It gives us the illusion of control, the illusion of independence, the illusion of autonomy. Again, stability and security are good things. Yet, we want to be careful not to seek our ultimate source of security and stability in finances. These are only a reflection of the security and stability that we find in God. And think about a reflection. If you look into a mirror, you can never actually grab what you see. If you reach for it, your hand is going to bump up against the glass. Well, in the same way, when we seek our ultimate source of security and stability in finances, We can never quite seize it. We can never quite grab onto it. We might reach out for it, but our hand is going to bump up against the glass. 
for it's never going to offer us enough stability and security. We're never going to be able to find that rest and the peace that we truly seek within it. There's as a, um, in July, July 5th, there was a New York Times article, and it talked about the current economic crisis that's happening in Lebanon. And it's a sobering and it's a very tragic circumstance. The article says the following, quote, The World Bank said the financial crisis could rank among the world's three worst since the mid-1800s. The currency has lost more than 90% of its value, and unemployment has skyrocketed. Let us pray for Lebanon. This is a terrible circumstance, and we should weep for our brothers and sisters in Lebanon. But as we pray, let us grow in wisdom in doing so. Who's to say that by the time that you retire, the USD will not have lost 90% of its own value? We don't hope this will happen. To be a Christian is not to be a sadist. And this is not to say that you shouldn't save. Saving is a prudent. Saving is a wise action. But it's not a foolproof or impervious action. We have to realize that the security and stability that finances provide can actually vanish in a moment. And I say this with trepidation, but the good and gracious and sovereign purposes of God are unshakable. It might be a different kind of security and stability than we right now imagine, but it's the only true form. And it might even take us places that we don't wish to go, but we can rest assured that God always has our best in mind. And to say that is to say to be a Christian is to be a realist. To say that the only ultimate sources of security and stability are in God alone. It's the only kind that exists. A quick perusal of the news will show us as such. Think about the words of C.S. Lewis. He says the following. That is the conclusion of the whole matter. God gives us what he has, not what he has not. He gives the happiness that there is, not the happiness that is not. And then Lewis goes on to give us three different options in light of that reality. One, to be God. That's one option. It's not really available for us. Two, to be like God and to share his goodness and creaturely response. Or three, to be miserable. And then Lewis writes the following. If we will not learn to eat the only food that the universe grows, the only food that any possible universe can ever grow, then we must starve eternally. And in the same way, God gives us only the security and stability that is, not the security and stability that is not. And that only true security and stability is God himself. And so really our only choice as humans is to rest secure, however scary that might be, in the good and gracious and sovereign will of God. For if we rest in our finances that which we have stored away, if that's our ultimate source, then we will be miserable and we will not find rest. We will be continually hitting our hand against the mirror, seeing something, trying to grasp it, but never ever really being able to reach it. But we have to remember that the reflection points back to a source. 
So then we are to follow the good desire for security and stability back to its only true source, God himself. And that brings us to our second point, spending. Look with me at James 5, 4 through 5. James writes the following, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Recall that James warns us against simply storing our gold and making it subject to rotting, to corrosion, to moths, warning us against keeping it back, warning us against seeking in finances the kind of security and stability that only God himself can provide. And what this does is it causes our riches to rot. God intends us, God intends us to use our finances. We are to be like a mountain stream. And if you think of a mountain stream, it receives from above and it passes down its good gifts to that which is below. And when you think about the water of a mountain stream, it is clean, it is cool, it is crisp, it is refreshing. But James warns us against storing, and there's a certain kind of, of storing wherein we become a stagnant pond. And if we think about the water in a stagnant, stagnant pond, we find rottenness, we find mold, we find decay, we find algae. However, we're not to use our finances in just any way. James warns against a kind of self-indulgence that has luxury at the expense of the other. What he calls specifically holding back wages. Now, of course, there's immediate applications to this command. If you own a business, James is telling you to pay your workers fairly. Or even as a parent, and, and this is one that, that I often stumble in. For example, if your child mows the grass, well, pay him or her immediately. Make good on that commitment and show your children the importance of doing so. But let's also think hard about this and wonder about other forms that this might take. Again, this is a very jarring passage, and we really want to stop and slow down and think about what James has to say in all of the many ways it might apply to our lives. It should make us uncomfortable, especially as we think about this passage in light of, of modern economic realities. Think about spending. <clears throat> when we spend our money, we sometimes run up against two priorities that at times, not always, but at times can compete. On one hand, we seek the cheapest price, but on the other hand, we seek the good of our neighbor. And we can't forget that the second great commandment of the human life is to love our neighbor as ourself. So when we think about spending, we always want to have the good of our neighbor in mind. So think deeply about the businesses that you patron, about the companies that you use. Are they companies and businesses, no matter what the size, that treat their workers well? If so, James is telling us those are probably the companies and businesses that we should be using. But it's also the case that we live in a globalized world and these commands can take on globalized proportions. And so as much as we are able, 
we should look into who and how our products are made. For instance, William Cavanaugh, in his, his very important book, um, Being Consumed, Economics, and Christian Desire, talks about factory conditions in a South American factory that's charged with making clothes for American consumers. And Cavanaugh, a, a theologian, says the following. The workers earn 77 cents per jacket or 56 cents an hour. The factory is surrounded by barbed wire and armed guards. A worker interviewed after her 12-hour shift told of being unable to feed herself and her three-year-old daughter adequately. Her daughter drinks coffee because they cannot afford milk. Both mother and daughter suffer fainting spells. And when questioned about the conditions, the president of the factory said the following. If you really ask me, this is not fair. However, in the United States, if you want to buy a Honda Civic, you can shop around and you'll always find cheaper ones. To which Kavanaugh adds, this is what the clothing companies were doing, shopping around the whole world for the cheapest labor price. And this truth is one that makes me uncomfortable. I am a perpetrator of this. I buy things and I don't think of where or how or under what conditions they were made. And in a sense, when I'm doing that, I'm not fully reckoning with the words of James. I'm not concerned about the wages of the workers. And this is important because James and Christianity never pits personal holiness and societal holiness against each other. God's law is the most comprehensive ethics you can possibly imagine. It calls all of us to account in every area of our lives. And so let us be humble and let us be quick to hear what James has to say. And so just as much as I ask myself with regards to family life, sexuality, the following, I also have to ask myself, am I making economic decisions that are withholding the wages from workers? If I'm able, might I be able to look more into how products are made and choose to buy products that are more fairly promoting the good of workers, workers who are my neighbor? This might mean that I have to pay more, and some of us might not have that option, and I understand that. But as much as possible, <clears throat> and this will be different for each person, our economic decisions should seek to love the neighbor as we love ourselves. The way we spend should seek both our good and the good of our neighbor. Consider here even a small step regarding the purchase of perhaps one particular good that you regularly buy, ensuring that the business, whatever the size, big or small, treats its workers well. But we can't just stop at the second commandment of loving our neighbor as ourselves. We also have to look at the greatest commandment, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that brings us to our last point, selling. And I want to look at selling under the auspice of two Fridays. The first Friday I want to look at is Black Friday. And as we know, this is a Friday that comes after Thanksgiving where we shop, shop, and shop in response to sale, sale after sale after sale. And of course, there's an irony here, right? Because right after Thanksgiving, where we give thanks and gratitude for all that we have, we immediately go to shopping to replace and displace those things for which we were grateful only hours before. But more importantly, we find here a gospel. 
We find a problem diagnosed, and we find a solution offered. In that sense, Black Friday is revelatory. We're presented with things that we didn't know we needed to solve problems we didn't know that we needed to solve. We're told how to be happy, like the family in the commercial, the person on the billboard, or the child on the sidebar of the internet ad. They have something we don't, and because of it, they are happy, successful, and accepted, and so we also need to get that thing. This is the gospel of that Friday. You are sad, miserable, uncool, unsophisticated, unsuccessful, etc., because you don't have this commodity. Buy it and be healed. Go in peace. Your finances have made you well. Yet we buy and buy, but we don't feel any better. We feel worse. We still have that same desire for joy, for happiness, for love, for acceptance, but we remain less happy, less joyful, less content with the stuff that we actually have. Let me quote Kavanaugh again, and this is, this is a bit of a long quote, but it's, it's instructive. He says the following, Consumer desire must be constantly on the move. The extreme makeover is an ongoing process in the search for novelty, for bigger and better, for new and improved, and for different experiences. The shaving razor with one blade had to be surpassed by the double-bladed razor, which was bested by three blades, then four, and now an absurd five blades on one razor. This is more than just a continuing attempt to make a product better. It's what one car company called the organized creation of dissatisfaction. How can we be content with a mere two blades when the current standard is five? How can we be content with an iPod that downloads 200 songs when someone else has one that downloads a thousand? Kavanaugh then asks us how different we would be as consumers if we simply said, it is enough. I am happy with what I have. Years ago, we were told to buy an iPod with a few hundred songs. Then after that, with a few thousand. And as we know, the iPod has now been discontinued, and so happiness must lie elsewhere. So let's go back to the store and find out what's on offer now. But there's also another Friday, and this was a truly Black Friday, one in which, in the midday, the sky was actually darkened. This was a good Friday, but it starts in a curious place wherein the one who perfectly loved God and neighbor was killed, was crucified on the cross. And in this other Friday, we also find a gospel. We find a problem diagnosed, and we find a solution offered. And this is the Friday that James himself appeals to to give us our ultimate and proper orientation to finances. James writes the following in 5.6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, this can seem a strange, a stark, a sudden statement in everything that James has written before in this passage. So what is he getting at? What does he mean? Biblical scholar Alec Matir is quite helpful here, and he writes the following. Quote, It is, in fact, surely impossible to read the words, Kill the righteous man, he does not resist you, without the lone and wonderful figure of the Lord Jesus coming before the eyes of the mind. He is preeminently the righteous one. 
However unexpected the reference, no sooner is it made than we exclaim over its suitability. Judas sold his Lord for money, and the holy righteous one bowed to the act. Thus James exposes the sinfulness of those whose lives acknowledge only the lordship of money. End quote. God himself became human, and his life was traded for a bag of silver. For the love of all the security and stability that Judas thought money would provide, Judas betrayed Christ. For the desire of having more, Judas profited off of the murder of Christ. Yet in Christ, God lets himself become a very commodity. As James tells us, the righteous one did not resist. In Christ, God was bought and sold. In Christ, the very God of the universe was priced at a mere 30 pieces of silver. What was Judas's God? It was money. In those 30 pieces of silver, he thought, now I will finally have what I need. Now I will be happy. Now I will be content, satisfied, successful, accepted. Now I will have security. Now I will have stability. All he thought he needed was 30 pieces of silver. This was quite literally the price that Judas had placed upon God himself. But the problem here is not that Judas wants too much. The problem is that Judas wants much too little. This is the false gospel of Black Friday. It tells us that we need too little. But no buying can meet the deepest need of who we are. This is a gospel that is much, much, much too small. As theologian Oliver O'Donovan tells us, God is much more ambitious for us than we are for ourselves. What have we priced God at? How many pieces of silver? Enough to buy a new car, a new house, a new wardrobe, a new smartphone, a new degree? If we have this, we think then we will be content. But it will take much, much more than that, infinitely more. God has given us such dignity that nothing short of himself will meet the deepest needs, the deepest desires, the deepest fulfillments of our heart. God has given us such dignity that only in him can we find the joy and the contentment that we actually seek. As Augustine famously said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Anything that we purchase on Black Friday, however good, will ultimately leave our heart restless. And this is the gospel of the other Friday, the Good Friday, that we have sought to fulfill our deepest desires and things much too small, so much so that we were willing even to sell God himself in order to get them, that we have valued God at 30 pieces of silver in a million different ways. We, all of us, have sold God. We, like Judas, sent him to the cross, and we all have our 30 pieces of silver. Why is Christ on the cross? Because I, because you, have rested your deepest faith, your deepest salvation, your deepest love in something other than God, in the mere things that money can buy. But this is not the only truth of the cross. 
It was not only us that sent Christ to the cross, it was also God. To us, God was worth very little, 30 pieces of silver. But to God, it's a different story. To God, we are worth so much that he was willing to give us his very own son. We are worth so much to him that he gave us his only begotten son. Judas purchased mere silver through Christ, but God, through Christ, purchased us, our very selves, our whole self. God let himself be sold so that we could pay the debt we owed to him for every sin that separates us from him, for every time we've bowed to the lordship of money and turned our back upon God and neighbor. Through the sale of Christ, we receive much more than silver. We receive God himself. In Christ, God does not take. God gives. In fact, he gives himself freely to us in Christ. God freely gives us the greatest good that exists, God himself. The gospel is that we have been freely given that which is most worthy of love and desire, the very God of the universe. The gospel of this Friday is that we have loved lesser goods and turned our back upon God. And so this greatest good has come after us and sought us out, giving himself freely to us. For Christ himself has paid it all. We must merely receive, merely receive God. This is our starting point. And so we move out from a place of abundance of having God himself. And so our starting point is one of receiving, of God giving his whole self to us in Jesus Christ. Again, we're to be like a mountain stream receiving from above and passing down the good gifts that we receive. And to be sure, one of the good gifts that we receive is finances. Knowing that we already have that which can fulfill our greatest desire, let us use our finances in a way that demonstrates our freedom from the lordship of money. We no longer bow down to money we have to earn, but to the God who gives himself freely. For we already have the greatest treasure that no money can buy. We really do, in Christ, have God himself. So then from this abundance, from this contentment, from this ultimate place of security and stability, let us use our finances in a way that demonstrates love of God and love of neighbor. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have given to us that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Father, for the way that we have bowed to the lordship of money, that we have priced you at 30 pieces of silver and thought if we just had this, we would be happy, knowing that nothing can fulfill our deepest desire, nothing other than you, and you have given yourself freely to us in Jesus Christ. Help us to rest in this confidence, in this security, in this joy, in the security, in the stability, that this alone can provide. Help us to receive and help us to trust. In Christ's name we pray, amen.